Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to another edition of Hacking Public Policy. I'm your host, Bob Tregellis. As you might recall, you might have heard my last edition for Hacker Public Radio on energy democracy, uh, where I actually just you know, copied over one of my regular shows from This Week in Energy TV, uh, to, uh, Hacker Public Radio. And it was where we had a South, uh, fellow South, in South Korea, a solar blogger who interviewed both myself and my co-host, Kirsten Hosberg in Germany about energy democracy. And we defined it. In this, uh, edition of Hacking Public Policy, we're going to talk about the underground press. And joining me today is Ken Watsberger. He's the founder of a Symphony Press. He's uh, also was heavily involved during the prime years of uh, underground paper in Lansing, Michigan, uh, called Joint Issue, uh, which we'll get into why it was named Joint Issue. I was very surprised, actually, because when I first saw the, the paper, I just figured it was referring to marijuana, but it was referring to two papers that joined together. But in any case, what happened was um, a friend of mine who lives here locally in Reno, she happened to have a little pile of these uh, underground papers in her garage. She was cleaning up. And so I took a look at them and I've always been fascinated by the underground press having been uh, uh, and still am a community organizer and often wondering how they organized around the Vietnam War and so on and so forth back in the late 60s, early 70s, when there wasn't any internet, because all I've known is the internet. So, Ken, uh, why don't we start off with, um, why don't we define underground press? You say you have a little bit different definition than the formal ones we see online, so why don't we talk about that a little bit? What was the underground press? Well, okay, well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, the underground press was the uh, the dissident press, the anti-war press, the independent press. Uh, basically, it was an alternative to the corporate press. The corporate press, uh, the establishment press, the straight press, those are some of the terms for that press. But basically, those were the newspapers that uh, were supported by big business. They were the newspapers that uh, supported the war down the line. Uh, if the government said this is what's going on, that's what they reported without challenging it. And uh, we were the ones who were going overseas to die. And so we had to obviously look a little bit more closely. And uh, what we discovered was that they were lying to us. Uh, this was a big surprise. I mean, nowadays you think you assume the government's going to lie. Uh, I think that's, that's a legacy of the Vietnam War because before that, uh, certainly in the community that many of us came from, uh, it was assumed that the government was was totally down the line. You know, whatever they said, that's the way it was. Uh, love it or leave it was the expression that we kept hearing when we opposed the war. So, um, so the, the underground press, the term underground was somewhat romantic, uh, but nevertheless, it was it was clearly outside of the mainstream, and uh, uh, we were the ones who were not beholden to the big interests. We didn't have. Uh, you know, money supporting us, uh, you know, big businesses supporting us. And uh, and we didn't care if we did. I mean, basically, the, the idea of the underground press was we have to find out what's really going on. And, uh, and we did. Right. And, yeah, the underground press, of course, is kind of was lifted here where we have the First Amendment. So if we got freedom of speech and freedom of the press. But 
it was lifted, I guess, from wartime, World War II era, I suppose. Well, in World War II, clearly, there, when, when they said underground press, what they meant was that if we get exposed, we die. I mean, right. it was as simple as that. So we're talking uh, about French liberators and people that were opposing Germany and so so on, right? Very much, very yeah. much. Right. Okay, so cool. So, in, in fact, in, in fact uh, on the, uh, the little logo for uh, Micah Press, which was the the publisher that we created in order to publish the first edition of my book, Voices from the Underground, Insider Histories of the Vietnam-Era Underground Press, was a white rose. And the, the symbolism behind the white rose was that that was the name of a group, actually a, a brother and sister, I believe, uh, who opposed Hitler during World War II, and uh, they got exposed and, and they were killed. Oh, wow. Wow, well... <laughs> Fortunately, that wasn't happening here in the United States, sort of. Well, it did, I, I could it did tell so stories in certain of, communities. I mean, yes. certainly, uh, certainly yeah. the Black Panthers would not say, "Well, thank God it's not happening here," because it was happening to them left and right. Right. So, and, and, and other groups too. Well, and then we could talk about uh, Kent State, uh, but before we go there, before we talk about what really launched the underground press, I guess in the like 1968 era. Let's first define, you know, because you did do, you did teach, uh, at, uh, Michigan State University? Eastern Michigan University. Oh, Eastern Michigan. Eastern Michigan University. And you did, did teach journalism. So why don't you give us the, the working definitions of objective journalism and uh, versus editorializing and then kind of try and shoehorn in the underground press and how it kind of mixed the two? Well, um, in, in journalism school, maybe still, I don't know, but maybe still they teach what's called objective journalism, the idea that, uh, that a journalist isn't supposed to have an opinion, uh, that we're supposed to teach just the facts, be objective in other words. And uh, as soon as you start saying, I believe, or something like that, you're moving into opinion. You can't do that. So you've got to be objective. This is why, uh, uh, you know, the, the idea of, of, of uh, sharing both sides of the story. Uh, the, the belief here is, the myth here is that every story has two sides, uh, which means only two sides. There are no shades along the way. Uh, this is why if you uh, interview a Democrat, you have to interview a Republican. The implication is that those are the only two sides. And, um, and this is also why newspapers have editorial pages that furthers the myth of objective journalism. That the myth here is that that it's all the facts everywhere else, but on the the editorial page. That's where the opinions are shared. But in reality, uh, you can't do an article that doesn't have an opinion in it. I mean, even a weather report has an opinion. If you think of it, you know, if you look at, like, I'm from Michigan. If I look at the weather report, it's going to focus on the cities in Michigan because that's where most of the readers of our newspapers would be. So that's that's an opinion, though. That's a it's slanted, in other words, in favor of Michigan. So it's not really objective. So uh, what Underground Press did was we said, let's not pretend that we're being objective. We're not. We have an opinion, and uh, and we're going to express it. In addition, um, the uh, often we were participants in the events that we covered. There was no uh, no pretense that you know you've got the activists, and then on the side you've got the journalists who have to watch everything. We were actually involved in everything. We would go, we would demonstrate, then we, you know, run home and, and write up the article, write the, uh, you know, and we'd talk about the demonstration that we were part of. You know, we would get busted along with everybody else, and we'd write about it from the inside. 
So that was uh, that became known as participatory journalism. Oh, okay. And that was uh, that was a, a huge difference, though. I mean, you you read the uh, the underground press, you see that all the time. The stories, you know, <clears throat> when we would, uh, you know, as a community organizer, uh, what we did was we got people who were involved in all the different events that were happening around town, all the different co-ops, all the different uh, groups that were, were going on, and we would get them to write up their own stories. So, right. that's, you know, that's how we built the paper. Right, and it was an organizing tool, as you talk about in one of your articles, or, well, your article in the first edition of Voices of the Underground. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but before we go more in-depth there, you know, drill down on those topics, let's also define the factions of the time. Um you know, I was reading some of this stuff. I, I was in middle school, junior high school at the time, in early high school, uh, back in the early seventies. And, um, you know, I wasn't really paying attention to these things. My, my focus was on other, other things at the time, but, um, what a liberal, I was kind of surprised to see that a liberal was used in a more, Kind of more in the older sense, in the 18th and 19th century sense, sort of in in some of the reading I've been doing in your Voices of the Underground. So why don't we define the differences between who was a liberal, who was a conservative, who was a radical, who was a yippie, or what a yippie was and what a hippie was? Oh boy, you're covering a lot of ground there. <laughs> well, uh, do it quickly. <laughs> well, okay. Well, to start with the the idea of a, of a liberal. Uh, you know, we always consider the liberals our worst enemies. I mean, nowadays, when, when someone talks about someone being a liberal, when, when the right talks about someone being a liberal, they're implying that they're flaming radicals right. because our country has shifted so far to the right. But uh, when we looked at liberals, basically a liberal was someone who you could always count on to say what you wanted to hear. But then when it came time to voting, they always voted against you. Uh, they always had a good reason. It was a good liberal reason, in other words. Uh, that, that's the way we, we interpreted it. I mean, conservatives, you knew you hated them because you knew they were, were always on the wrong side, but at least they admitted it. I mean, they would say, hey, we're on the wrong side. You know, they didn't use those words, of course, because to them it was the right side. But, but from our perspective, they were clearly on the wrong side, but you knew that. You know, they didn't make any pretense of otherwise. So you could at least trust them in that sense. The liberals, uh, you didn't, you couldn't trust. Because they always said that they would support you, and then they didn't. They always had a reason why not to support. So, uh, so those were the the big political differences. Radicals, you didn't have too many of in, uh, uh, you know, in Congress. But the idea of a radical is someone who wants to get to the root. Uh, that radical comes, you know, comes from that word root. Uh, mm-hmm. They want to get to the root of the issue. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that was what a radical was. Okay, and then a hippie was. Well, that was a lifestyle thing. I mean, anybody who had, right. uh, you know, long hair, who smoked pot, uh, you know, that the, the, the was the hippie culture. And right. the hippies were the were the um, uh, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin uh, were the, the main founders of the, of the hippies. Basically, what they wanted to do was to politicize. They you had the the hardcore politicos, you know, who were straight laced but nevertheless very radical, and then you had the hippies who were smoking dope and and. Uh, you know, listening to music and all that. Basically, they were all on the same basic side of the issue. I mean, in other words, they weren't pro-war. But uh, but they what, what the yippies did was they tried to merge the two. Uh, they, you try to take the, the radicals, and then you got the hippies, and bring them together. And uh, so you have the, the hippie lifestyle, perhaps, but 
becoming more more radicalized. So, okay, well, pure hippie then maybe might be thought of as being more apathetic, whereas a yippie would be more activist, maybe. Perhaps, perhaps. I mean, yeah. I mean, really, uh, you know, those were technical definitions. In right. fact, uh, again, it was a merger. I mean, you know, from where we were coming from, if you were smoking dope, you were, it was better than. Not smoking dope. You know, I mean, it was, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, we were all against the war. Uh, some were, some were actively protesting. Some were just smoking dope and not doing anything. So basically, we're on the right side. The the uh, idea of the yippies was to get those guys who were on the right side but who weren't doing anything to do something. Right. Yeah, you know, I... I mean, we have the we had the smoke ins. You know, the the be ins, the love ins, and everything that ended with in was was good. And. uh <laughs> We'd, we'd get them, you know, we'd get everybody there and, you know, there'd be a lot of dope going around. But nevertheless, there was a lot of political activity happening also. You know, we, you know, I'd go there, I'd be passing out papers the, the whole time, you know, passing out flyers, talking about upcoming meetings. A lot of people wouldn't come to them, but some would. Right. That's how we recruited people. Cool. Well, yeah, and we want to get a little drilled down a little more into that because organizing to to hack public policy, you have to organize. And of course, you have to organize, you have to have tools for outreach. And of course, this is where the underground press comes in. Now, let's set the stage a little, uh, little bit of what it looked like at the end of the sixties and into the early seventies with respect to college life and college students. I quickly looked up, um, working college students, you know, and, and what the, what that was like as far as the percentage of 16 to 24 year old uh, college students who were enrolled full time and employed from 1970 to 2005. And according to, I don't know, some association of professors or something like that, um, back in 1970, uh, your percentage was, oh, maybe 32% of college students were in, or were, uh, enrolled full-time and working part-time. And then into the 2000s, it it bounces around about 50%. So what I was curious about was what the leisure time was like for college students at the time, because there seemed to me, I didn't live it because I was too young at the time, but looking back at it, it just seemed like it was more focused and that uh, students seemed to have more a zeal for activism at the time, and I'm wondering what elements informed that and animated that. Am, am I correct, or was it just, you know, because you were just mentioning that there weren't that many people, you know, a few people would show up to meetings and things of this sort, which it seems to be the same problem that we have these, you know, in today's time. Well, I think, I think sometimes we're too harsh on this generation. Uh, you know, the young folks today, uh, I mean, I mean, a lot was happening in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, for one thing, it was new. It was exciting. I mean, that doesn't mean it's good necessarily. People are dying, but I mean, it was, there was an excitement about it. You know, it was, it was new and the media wanted to cover it. Um, the, the fact that we were dying, uh, certainly intensified our need to do something. Uh, now, uh, you know, Americans are still dying, but they're choosing to go overseas. You know, I mean, uh, I don't know why they want to do that, but but they they uh, you know they volunteer to go into the army. Uh, back then there was the draft, right. so you had people coming into the war who did not want to be there. I mean, people who were anti-war, you know, organizing against the war. All of a sudden they're in Vietnam. They didn't suddenly become pro-war. Uh, in fact, there were hundreds of underground newspapers in the military, 
So, uh, so that, you know, that's changed right now. We don't have that right now. Um, the economy is so much worse now. So much, some in, incredibly worse, uh, that students are just, uh, I think overwhelmed with debt. Uh, I mean, this is a serious, this is a serious organizing issue, frankly. I'd like to see, uh, students doing a lot more organizing around student debt. Uh, there right. is some, uh, I'm aware of it only because I've got my own kids who are either in college or paying for college and, and, uh, and hugely in debt. I mean, the debts that I can't even see, you know, like a house payment kind of a debt. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I'd like to see more students doing, uh, organizing around that. So, I mean, there are different issues. The ecology now is, is much more serious than it was then. I mean, the ecology was just becoming a big issue, uh, as the war was ending. Uh, I, I remember a friend saying, okay, now that the war is over, what should I do next? I think I'm going to get involved in the ecology. And, uh, you know, I, I remember thinking, oh, yeah, I guess that's a new issue. Maybe I'll do that too. Um, you know, a lot of anti-war people drew, it moved into that area. But, um, so did, I don't know. Just, most, so did most of this activism, was it occurring on the college campuses and wasn't so much the blue collar folks, you know, maybe? No, it was were... everywhere. It was everywhere. Okay. I mean, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, uh, if you look at my book, and I'll plug it right now, it's called Voices from the Underground. It's a, it's a four-volume set of books called Voices from the Underground series. Uh, that's the updated version of what came out that I mentioned that came out in 1993. Uh, it's a series of histories of individuals, uh, individual underground papers, rather, as written by key people on each of the papers. So I wrote the history of the Lansing area, Lansing, Michigan, uh, and then I used that as the prototype. I said to everyone else, here's what I did. Can you do a similar piece with yours? And then I worked with them to help them to expand it, to edit it, and so on. But what I found uh, was that the underground press was everywhere during the Vietnam era. The anti-war movement was the largest, most diverse uh, anti-war movement in the country. I mean, in our history, there has never been one that's as large, as diverse, and it was everywhere uh, and so the underground press reflected all of those voices. I mean, all of the underground papers were uh, united against the war. But beyond that, they spoke to different audiences. So you had the gay press, the lesbian press, the feminist, the black, the Native American, the Puerto Rican, the military underground press, the prisoners' rights, the uh, rank and file, you know, the workers. Uh, you had the counterculture, the new age, uh, the senior citizens. And they, you know, the Grey Panthers came out of that period. So you had, uh, so, so you had underground papers everywhere. And what I found was, uh, I found in, uh, in representatives of, of all of these or many of these, uh, different, uh, genres, so to speak, of underground uh, newspapers. And I worked with them to tell their individual histories. And so what you've got in, in the voices from the underground series is, is this incredible, diversity of what the anti-war movement was as reflected in uh, histories of different underground newspapers. But they were everywhere. They were ever, so you, there was a lot of it in the campus. You always thought of the campus community, but but it was way more than that. It was a lot more than just that. Right. And then um, I guess another thing that really animated it, besides the having skin in the game with respect to the draft, uh, was the incident, the tragic, horrific incident at Kent State University. Do you want to talk about that, where four students were shot by uh, Ohio National Guardsmen? Well, yeah, uh, that's, that's significant to me personally because 
that was the event that that drew me into the movement. Uh, I mean, there were lots of other incidents around the country, people getting killed for one way or one reason or another, uh, and and all of these incidents of of police brutality. Uh, did the exact opposite of what the police wanted. They didn't shut people up. They got them pissed off and and more committed. Uh, so in my case, uh, it was it took Kent State. That was 1970. When you when you say the phrase Kent State, people just know what you're talking about. It's not mm-hmm. a college. It's an event. And uh, yeah, there was an anti-war uh, rally uh, early May 1970, uh, May 4th, and um, four students were killed by National Guards. And uh, guardsmen, and uh, as a result of that, student strikes swept the, the country. It was amazing, you know, little, you know, one at a time, two at a time. Uh, colleges were going out on strike, and uh, and schools were shutting down because no students were going to classes. Uh, and this just happened all around the country. Uh, and so I was at Michigan State at the time, uh, and uh, and I got involved in the the uh, activities there, really with not the intention of being a radical. Uh, as much as just trying to figure out what's happening. I mean, it was exciting, but I I wasn't yet politically committed to it because I didn't really understand it all. And uh, uh, and so I went to an event one day. It was a discussion on racism. And uh, as it turned out, our president happened to be black. Uh, in fact, he was the first black man to be named president of a major university. And the, uh, the university was having, of course, a field day in the PR department. Well, this is so cool. So we invited him. We invited him to come to the, uh, the, the event. It was a discussion of racism. Well, of course, instead of coming, he sent all of his friends. And, uh, so what they did was they surrounded the student union where the meeting was at. When I say friends, of course, I'm talking about the police from East Lansing, from Lansing, from Eam County, from the state of Michigan. Uh, they surrounded the student union and then one by one, they began arresting all the people inside. And, uh, as it turned out, because I happened to have been one of the last ones to enter the building, I was the closest one to the entrance. And so when they began the arrest, I was the first one arrested. And usually when the first one is arrested, what does that mean? He's probably the leader. You know, they get the hardcore <laughs> first. Yeah. So they so they arrested me and they started dragging me away. And, and the last thing I saw before they, they pulled me outside was one guy looking at someone else and going, who's he? Because, <laughs> you know, because they were getting me first. But anyhow, I... Uh, you know, it turned out a hundred and, uh, uh, you know, a hundred some of us, 132 of us were arrested and, and, uh, you know, got thrown in jail. I got thrown into solitary confinement and, uh, you know, all these things are going on and, and, and I'm saying, hey, I'm not supposed to be here. You know, I'm the future of our country. You know, I'm supposed to be, uh, you know, working my way up the ladder. And, uh, so you look around and you see what's going on and you realize all the people who are arrested with you are good people. And uh, by the time I emerged from solitary confinement, I was a radical. You know, I dropped out of college, uh, moved in with a friend who'd gotten busted with me, and uh turned out he was working on the local underground paper then. And uh, so I started going to meetings with him. And, you know, little by little, you know, next thing you knew, I was, I was one of the hardcore members of the paper. Right. And then what's such a blow mine is that this was just a, a teach-in on racism and Got raided by the cops, you know, and this is just yeah, no, it's pretty crazy. Well, they wanted free assembly. They wanted to arrest us. I mean, what they did was they waited until after the after hours. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was an incredible discussion, you know, and it was important. I mean, you know, racism was a really important issue then. I mean, it still is, of course, but uh, but it was an important issue then, and and 
And so we, we felt it was important to stick around, even though it was past hours. We thought this was certainly worthy of an exception. So what the, the assistant manager did was he called up the cops, and, and they came and busted us all. So, uh, right. but again, you know, their, their hope was to break it up. What it did instead, it was just intensify it. Right. So anyway, all these different things that were going on at that time, a million different issues were going on with feminism. I don't think we've even mentioned yet. But, um, of course, the draft and then the Kent State thing, this created a lot of anger amongst the radicals. And, of course, we saw more, I guess, more engagement than we do these days because there seems to be the anger seemed to be amongst the radicals in the 60s, 70s, where it could be comparable to, uh, or the anger, say, in the underground press in the 60s, 70s, could be compared to the right-wing shock jock type AM radio. Do you have any thoughts on that? I was Because when I was reading through some of the stuff, I was thinking, and reading the joint issue, I was thinking, you know, this kind of sounds almost would translate into how you hear these shock jock you know, from the right wing today on AM radio and the anger from the right and the Tea Party and so on and so forth. Is this kind of similar things, do you think? Oh, I suppose the, the intensity of the anger could be similar. Uh, there is a difference in the fact that they're lying. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, I mean, I mean, if you, if you, you, you don't have to look at the facts so long to realize that, that they're not saying them. Uh, right. So there was that difference there. And, and of course, they're financed by big money. We weren't. Uh, ours was a lot more grassroots than theirs was. I mean, they, uh, you know, the, the, the grassroots on the right really is not as, as grassroots as, you, as, as right. grassroots-ish as they want you to think, you know, <laughs> because, yeah, because, uh, you know, it's really a lot of big money that's supporting the whole thing. Right. And it's a pop propaganda but, campaign, I guess, whereas the underground press was just trying to figure out what was going on and explore the issues. Uh-huh. I mean, there, I mean, there, the similarities, like I said, in, in, in the anger, I, I, I sense that there, there's a certain similarity there, but, uh, but I, I see the, the right wing rank and file being so misled. Uh, I mean, it, it's so pathetic. Uh, I, I think, honestly speaking, the Tea Party is, is one of the dumbest parties on record. Uh, I mean, I just, I can't see, I, I've never seen a, a, a group of people who are so united against their own interests. Uh, I mean, that's the big, that's the big difference, quite frankly. You know, we were, we were protecting our own interests. Uh, you know, we were gonna die or not. They're, they're fighting their own interests. I mean, I mean, healthcare is such a major, uh, positive to so many of these people. I mean, how many of them are, who are, are fighting against, you know, Obamacare are unemployed and don't have any health insurance? Right. You know, and then they're yeah. saying, no Obamacare, no socialized medicine. You know, they don't even know what that means. But they're uh, on Medicare or something. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and it, but, you know, exactly. They're saying protect my Medicare, you know, which is socialized <laughs> medicine. So it's, so I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, that, I mean, that's the big difference. You know, we right. were, you know, we were, uh, educating. We were encouraging education. They're discouraging education. I mean, when you think about it, you know, when you see what the, what the right is doing to the, ed, to, uh, the schools, you know, to the universities, I mean, they're decimating them. Uh, and, and there has been no record that, that, you know, the, the so-called schools of choice are any better. In fact, they're underperforming in many cases. Uh, but it's, it's just creating more segregation, more, uh, class division, you know, and I mean, those are the goals. And, and so these, these, these changes don't help the, the rank and file, you know, from the, uh, from the Tea Party, not at all. But they're fighting against us, you know, right. so, I and mean, they really should be on our side. 
They really should be. I think, but really, I think Obama has done a, you know, Obama, who is not so much always on our side either, um, has done a real poor job of doing outreach to the Tea Party. I mean, he should really be out there going, hey guys, you're on my side, you know, you know, they hate you, you know, <laughs> those guys hate you who are financing you. You know, he hasn't, uh, he hasn't gotten it together to say that, which is, which is amazing. I mean, he's such a great public speaker, but, uh, but he hasn't said that yet. So. Right. Well, there are some things going on within the Tea Party that are kind of interesting, especially down in Georgia with respect to energy policy. you got a lot of folks uh, in the a Green Tea Party faction that's broken out that's, uh, you know, against the monopoly utilities and so on and so forth. I'm really? Kinda, okay. Well, that's I good. hope to be I interviewing one of them shortly for my other show. But uh, okay. well, let's get back to the underground press. Um so anyway, in your voices of the underground, um, from the underground, uh, in the Thank first you. edition, um, I love this little dedication in the beginning here where it says contributors to this, I'll say four volume set. It says two volume. It was only two volume, I guess, at the time. Well, I'll say, but before you go there, let me explain why it was two volume and then, then finish your thought. Okay. Um, the, the, the first edition that came out in 1993, it was, the first volume was a huge, uh, book. It was over 600 pages laid out in an eight and a half by 11 two column form. In other words, in other words, it was literally four books. And those, that huge volume is now what's the four volume series, uh, that, you know, today. But volume two from the first edition was a resource guide. Uh, you had an annotated bibliography of books and articles about the underground press, a directory listing of special collections, libraries that have major holdings on the underground press. Uh, you know, oh, okay. Like, yeah. So, it was, mm-hmm. so it was a resource guide. Uh, given the internet, uh, it didn't make any sense when I was updating Volume One to also update Volume Two as a book because books get outdated so fast. Right. You know, resource guides are so outdated. So it really needs to become a uh, another website, and I just haven't had the finances to do that yet. But the Volume <laughs> One of the first edition is what's now the four volume set. So anyhow, I'll go back to what you were saying, but still, I want to clarify. Still that. struggling with the finances. <laughs> yeah, I always, always no difference there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so the contributors to, I'll just use, read it verbatim, but contributors to this two volume set of voices from the underground pay tribute to Tom Paine, whose common sense would not have been syndicated in England to Upton Sinclair and other turn-of-the-century muckrakers whose pens forced changes in labeling laws, child labor laws, and other issues that primarily affected poor people, and to all the other dissident pens throughout world history who gave us our tradition of independent reporting and analysis. And uh, that's something that seems to be sorely lacking, of course, in the corporate press these days. Do you mm-hmm. have any thoughts on that that you want to elaborate on? Well, which one do you want me to elaborate on? Well, let's go to, well, why don't we jump to the mission? I found in your article here kind of the mission of Joint Issue. Joint Issue saw itself, you write, as a uh, tool in the struggle for that collective community. It would be a community newspaper owned and operated by community people not to serve the community, but to be the community, which... Okay. Which, uh, which uh, I thought was a really great way of looking at this thing. It's not, it's more of a community bulletin board in that it's like the community rather than speaking to the people. It's, it's the people speaking. Right. It was, you know, in the defining community was, it was, uh, was a, um, 
actually regular activity. We are always defining what is community and what is joint issue. Uh, you know, I mean, the traditional uh, format of a newspaper is you've got it's hierarchical. You've got the editor, you know, the publisher, the editor, you know, the various levels below that. Right. Uh, and and what we try to do was be more of a collective. In other words, breaking down the hierarchies and uh, you know sharing in the decision making, and not, you know not having one person lording it over everybody else. That was always the effort. Uh, the reality always competed with the re- with the effort. I mean, the reality was that uh, you know a lot of people uh, wanted to be part of the decision making process, but then they would leave when the actual work had to get done. And uh, and so you were left with the same people doing the work all the time, and then those people could get easily, uh, you know, frustrated. Well, why are we letting everyone else help with the decisions if they're not going to do the work? So it was always it was always a struggle. You know, I mean, the effort was always there, the vision was always there, uh, and and it, sometimes it, it worked really beautifully. Other times you had to struggle, and so we, you know, plus, plus of course there was always turnover. People were coming and going. I mean, this was never a paid position, so people always were coming and going. So. So, you know, even if one group had made one, one definition, then another group would come and say, hey, we don't like that, and they change it. So it was always a struggle there, but it was a, a wonderful effort, and, uh, and it was a dynamic experience. I mean, I mean, just all that talking, you know, even though there was nothing uh, solid, you know, all, that worked the same day in and day out, it was that process of, of thinking and, and creating that, that was uh, incredibly dynamic and incredibly exciting. Right, and, so. uh, and defining the community too, you know, uh, you know, when you say it's a community bulletin, you know, we, you know, the, the concern was always, well, what if some hardcore right wing wacko comes along and says, well, I'm in the community, I want this article in there, you know, well, you know, do we have to do it? You know, so, so we, you know, of course we never did. Uh, it was, it was clearly a left wing paper and, and it was going to stay that way. But, uh, but we had to deal with those issues. You know, at what point do we say, no, we can't do that? We weren't going to allow anything that was blatantly racist or blatantly sexist or blatantly ageist, you know, all the negative ists, uh, we didn't want in there. Uh, and that was clear. You know, we would not allow those. I and mean, that was, that was okay. We were, uh, we were pretty consistent with that all along. Right. Well, I found that kind of interesting in this one edition that I have from uh, February 21st to March 5th. Uh, it was the special ecology issue in 1972. Okay, sure. um, one of the first articles here was this open meeting that you guys had at the uh-huh. MSU Union. Um, right. And uh, just kind of a, it sounded like a roundtable type of discussion about uh, who should be allowed to, as you were just discussing, contribute to the paper, participate in the paper. And uh, I was rather surprised how kind of closed it was. Um, folks were saying like, uh, uh, J.I. joint issues should exclude young Republicans. J.I. should exclude people uh, like those who support McGovern and Muskie. Uh, that it should remain radical. Uh, one person did say, one person that would have been much like myself said, well, where's where that? I can't seem to find it. We shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be blocking people from participating in this sort of a thing. Uh-huh. But I was rather surprised kind of how closed it was um did what came out of that do you recall i mean i presume that you were probably at that meeting it was yeah February and, 13th and in 1972 <laughs> i'm gonna be i was there i i'll be i'd struggle to, to remember the exact details of the meeting but if it was similar to the other meetings um 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you had people at, at different levels. I mean, some some people who worked on the paper were hardcore left. I mean, way to the left. You know, some of the you know the, the various Marxists political parties, stuff, yeah. the, the left political parties that most of us didn't belong to. Uh, but uh, others were more on the liberal side. You know, ready to ready to, to vote for McCarthy. Um, you know, looking back at it now, McCarthy seems a lot more radical than he was then. Back then, uh, looking at McCarthy, for a lot of us, he was still a Democrat. You know, we couldn't quite, we couldn't quite see the significance of what he was doing. This is, this is a factor, you know, a, a factor of us being young. You know, I mean, all of us, you know, most of us didn't come from, uh, radical backgrounds. You know, we didn't study radicalism in high school so that by the time college happened and we got involved in it we were hardcore knowing what we were doing i mean we were figuring out what we were doing as we were going along and uh you know so we made a lot of mistakes but there was a the effort was to be as open as we could be uh, i mean regardless of what came out of that particular meeting the reality was that we always had people at all extremes of, of the left right. no no young republicans we would not have allowed that uh on the other hand they wouldn't want to have been part of it anyhow <laughs> Right. Um, well, and then, you know, some things that when I was browsing through a couple of these issues that I found really surprising was, well, sadly, many of the themes were very familiar, uh, and still ongoing today. Uh, sure. but what I thought was very cutting edge, I always had the impression that the counterculture movement of the sixties, uh, early seventies, wasn't inclusive of the homosexual community and that the homosexual community was still very much in the closet at the time. And I was kind of surprised to see articles that were so uh, openly discussing homosexuality. Do you want to talk about that for a few minutes? Okay. They were discussing it. You're saying yes. In your paper. Oh, good. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay, good. I thought you were, I thought you were going to say you were surprised to see them being so. No, no, I, 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 I was, I got to that. okay. Th this is no, not we my, were up this is not my area of expertise, but I always was under the impression go. that the counterculture of the 60s was, you know, the homosexuality was still very much in the closet. And yet, I Well, was it was coming it. out then. Yeah. It was coming out then. I mean, you know, the expression is coming out. But, right. but the reality was that, was that it was. I mean, uh, you know, 1969, you know what Stonewall is when I mentioned that. Mm -hmm. uh, Stonewall was, uh, uh, it was a bar in, in, uh, in New York, but it was a gay bar, a gay lesbian hangout. And, uh, you know, the cops used to regularly raid it, and usually the the tradition pretty much was that the gays would, you know, they would disperse or they'd go get jailed or whatever they did, but then a few days later everything would settle down and get back to business as usual. But this one particular evening, they said, no, enough of this, and they fought back, and it, it, was, it had repercussions, of course, all around the country and, and literally around the world, and... Uh, and, and as a result of that, actually, uh, Gay Liberation Fronts, GLF, uh, Gay Liberation Fronts spread out, uh, you know, they, they sprung up all over the country, and a lot of them put out their own newspapers, uh, and these were the gay papers. Uh, uh, one of them was called Fag Rag, a paper out of Boston, uh, and the history of Fag Rag is in uh, Insider Histories Part 2 uh, in my book, which is actually Volume 3 of the series, but it's Insider Histories Part 2. And... Um, and a lot of lesbian papers came out of that also. Uh, one of them is called The Furies, uh, which is also in that same volume, a history of that. But, um, so yeah, but, but previous to those papers, uh, gays were on the, the regular, so to speak, underground papers. And, uh, yeah, some people, uh, on the left weren't comfortable with gays. And it took, uh, 
it was all part of the education. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but I mean, it happened. You know, gays were fighting. They say, hey, you know, we're we're part of this too. We demand equality in the same way that women were. Uh, you know, the feminists and, and the lesbians were, right. were saying, no, we're part of this too. You know, and we have our own issues. Yeah, we're all against the war, but we've got our own issues too. And uh, and so these all were being fought out in the underground press. I mean, it was an incredibly dynamic, incredibly dynamic. And no matter how far left you went, there were still factions, you know, fighting over nuances. And um, it's okay. That was part of growth. You know, people were speaking out for the first time, expressing themselves. And so... There was a lot of excitement, and uh, but a lot of uh, you know a lot of challenges. You know, people competing with each other with with their interpretations of what should be. Uh, right. But we had a we had a good I think a good uh, feminist and lesbian uh, and and uh, gay presence. Um, actually, one of the papers that uh, became joint issue. You know, you you correctly uh, analyzed the the name. Uh, originally, there were two papers, one called Generation and one called Bogue Street Bridge. That uh, united. This was at the end of, of 1969, just before the year ended. Uh, they came together and and they combined their staffs and they combined their resources and they put out an experimental joint issue. And that's where the the name came from. Of course, it was a pun. The, the first right. issue, <laughs> the first issue uh, showed uh, on page one. You had the the generation logo on the top, the uh, red apple, the uh, Bogue Street Bridge apple on the bottom. And in the middle, you had a hand that was holding a joint, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it said joint issue, and that was the first joint issue. And then later on, a paper that was the first Lansing underground newspaper, because these were all in East Lansing, uh, the first underground newspaper in Lansing was called Red Apple News, and that later joined also and became part of joint issue. But Red Apple News uh, had a strong feminist and lesbian presence uh, because of the people who were part of that paper. And so when they became part of joint issue, they brought that consciousness with them. Right, right. Why don't we talk now a little bit more about the heyday of joint issue, which I guess was like 71, 72 era, and how it was non-hierarchical that just these different, that we've been already talking about, these different communities would come in and attend open meetings and maybe participate for one issue because they had uh, a topic that they wanted to get out there, something they were organizing as a, you know, as this being as an organizing tool. Um, but then of course you, you had several core people who probably ended up doing the bulk of the work, but can Correct. we talk about, about that? Cause I saw it very much. I was kept thinking that, wow, Occupy was kind of a, a startup, a flare up of this, of this sort of, you know, community type thing going on that we saw Occupy a couple of years ago in the fall, I guess, what, two years ago now, or three. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very, you know, non-hierarchical, and it was all different communities that were coming together because of the the tension from our corporate government <laughs> that we have. Right. So why don't we talk about how Joint Issue worked through that and how it was, how, how it was, you know, established. And then, of course, you're we're, we're and compared to other uh, underground presses, where you know some of them they charged for editions. The uh, the joint issue was free. Uh, you were ad uh, supported, and then as you got bigger, I guess you needed to kind of tighten up your editorial uh, on your articles to make sure they were a little more accurate and stuff, and not just saying stuff because it sounded cool as you write in one of your 
in their book here? Well, we were the the uh, the initial papers. When I told you the ones that became joint issue, they were founded by individuals, and those people obviously were the paper. But but their goal always was to bring more people into the paper, and uh, it's to their credit that as more people came in, uh, they were welcomed. I mean, there always was a welcoming effort. There always was, uh, that, as I recall. Uh, you know, when you're new on a paper, you don't always feel it. Uh, but but our effort was always to try to bring new people in. Uh, I remember when I was new on, on the paper, uh, you know, I didn't feel comfortable talking either. I mean, I didn't feel like I was uh, up to par with, with the intelligentsia, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't understand the issues the way they did, and I didn't feel com- confident expressing my opinions, uh, and yet they would call on me anyhow. Ken, what do you think? You know, and, and that was really important. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was Inclusive. important in, in, in enabling me to, to uh, become confident ultimately, and, and it brought me into the paper. And so we always, you know, as I became one of the insiders, I always tried to do that to new people. And that was the, that was the, the purpose of our, uh, our community meetings and, and our open meetings when we discussed what was going to go in each issue, uh, where it became a problem for us was that when uh, when somebody, you know, we always voted on what issues, what articles would go in. And so you'd have somebody who had n- nothing to do with the paper up till that point, but had an article, would come with a few friends, and then they would vote. And so there'd be a lot of votes in favor of that article, and then they would, they would disappear. They'd never work on the paper. And so that's where, you know, a little bitterness comes in. You know, we're trying to be open. They're, they're ripping us off. So there was always... There was always a struggle between trying to be open and trying to uh, acknowledge that you know that we have to get work done and, and uh, you know certain people are going to do it. Okay, well, great. Um, so the paper, the Underground Press, uh, well, as we mentioned, your your issue was free. I guess others did charge. I guess the two that uh, came together to become the joint issue both charged for their uh, publications, and it was joint issue that finally went to free. But um, so the so people who contributed, all you really needed was a typewriter, and you could type out an article in a specific width, I guess, and then uh, you guys just sat around and pasted all the stuff up onto onto whatever the size of the paper was going to be, and then you used what photography, and you did because of offset printing. Where where did you where did you access you know the photos and offset printing, and how did you get uh, your print paper? Because you know you were up to ten. 10, 12,000 issues at, at one point. That's a lot of paper. <laughs> and then, of course, well, we, we obviously <laughs> didn't use all, you know, we didn't have all the paper ourselves. There were printers in the area, you know, printers that did newspapers. Um, you know, we had some of the shopping guides, you know, the small tabloids uh, that, you know, had ads in them or had, you know, cl- filled with classifieds, those kinds of newspapers. We, we found some of those printers uh, that uh. were willing to work with us. I mean, a lot of them weren't. They didn't want to handle the material that we were doing. Uh, but we always were able to find one or two that, that could. So, so yeah, we, we would have paper, uh, that was the size of the pages that we were going to be laying out. We, you know, we got those from the printer. And any time we would take, uh, an issue to the printer, we'd, we'd always get new blank pages to, uh, to take back to the office. So we could lay them out. But we would type the articles using margins that were the size of the two columns or the three columns, mm-hmm. whatever our layout was. And uh, we would just uh, type them up in those columns, and uh, then we would lay them out. We'd use the scissors so that 
you know, like if, if you had, say, three column inches, uh, and then all of a sudden a picture appeared, you couldn't, you couldn't lay out four column inches because the, the last inch would overlap the picture. So right. you would, uh, so you would just take the first three and then you would cut, and now you'd have another inch that you had to place somewhere else. So you'd right. go to the next column or you'd go to another page and put a continued, a continued, uh, uh note on the bottom. Uh, but yeah, we had to lay out every page using glue stick or, or, uh, you know, Elmer's glue or, 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 uh, you know, some kind of a glue. And, uh, uh, and mm. so it was a lot, it was, that was a fun part actually. A lot of, uh, fun doing the layout. But it was, uh, obviously different than, uh, than the computer. I mean, using the computer where just, you can magically, uh, <laughs> you know, lay out. I mean, <laughs> we didn't have that. But it was, but it was fun. It was artistic. I mean, uh, it was very exhilarating. Well, and you had, and you had some artists that were hanging out too that would do little oh, political comics and then just little doodles so you could fill in little gaps and spaces and things of the sort. So. Oh yeah, we, yeah. we put slogans all over the place. Take up hitchhikers and, you know, don't talk to the FBI and tip the dishwasher. That was always one of my favorites because I was a dishwasher back then. So, uh, yeah, I, we put those all over. And I love the community aspect of it and the community bulletin board sort of a thing, you know, that there's going to be a meeting over here about wages, boycott this restaurant because they're not paying the the waitresses and the cooks and, you know, the pick up the hitchhikers and so on and so forth. Was very, well, that was great. No, that was great. Right. I mean, it was really, it was a great organizing tool. I mean, people related to it. Uh, and uh, And plus there was something powerful about being able to hand – uh, a newspaper to somebody, uh, right. you know, it's in the process. I mean, that's, that's one thing that's missing today in the social media and the social media, of course, has its own advantages. Obviously, you know, it's incredibly powerful for what it does, but, but one of the disadvantages is that you can't hand it off the same way. You can't run into a stranger in the street and, uh, you know, talk about what you're doing and then hand them a paper, uh, when, when you're doing social media. So, uh, so that was, that was clearly an advantage. It was a lot more personal, uh, and organizing, you know, organizing is a very, uh, personal experience. I mean, you know, if you're ever a labor organizer, you learn that the organizing is done one at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, you can speak at rallies and all that and hopefully get a lot of people involved, but ultimately a lot of the organizing and the unionizing is just one, one person at a time, you know, knocking on doors or whatever. So with us, it was handing out newspapers. Right. And, um, that's sort of where I want to try and bring the show in for a landing here is that we want to start comparing and contrasting with today versus yesterday with the underground press. In your case in Lansing, who, who was the corporate paper or news sources there in the Lansing area region? Well, we had the Lansing State Journal. Okay. Uh, then in, in Detroit, you had the Detroit Free Press and the Detroit News. Right. Um, those and the are the dif- types of those. And not to conflate the Detroit Free Press, which still exists today, and I often read it with, uh, with being an underground press, like the LA Free Press, which was underground, so they don't right. conflate them. It was the Detroit Free Press was the corporate paper. Right, right. Right. So, uh, then you were competing with them, or, well, you weren't really competing with them, you were just your own voice. Uh, in a more community voice and, and so talk about your circulation and how it grew and what it was at, at its height, I guess. Okay. When, 
before joint issue when you had uh, uh, Gulf Street Bridge and, and Generation. Uh, I, I entered the underground press through Generation. Uh, and, uh, in fact, one of the first meetings that I ever attended was the one where the two staffs came together to, uh, to you know, to merge and become joint issue. But uh, but I came in through the, the Generation side. And uh, we used to print... We used to, to print about 3,000, 4,000, and uh, then we would just stand on the corner and, and try to sell them. Uh, we'd sell them for 15 cents. Uh, you know, we'd sell a few, but it was hard to make ends meet, so we'd raise it to 20 cents. Uh, we didn't lose anybody, but we didn't gain anybody, but at least, you know, it was a nickel more, so we gained a little more money. Uh, but still wasn't enough. Went up to 25 cents, and uh, it was the same thing. You know, people who used to buy the paper still bought the paper, but new people was hard to get. But um, but we were still uh, not making ends meet. And it was to me, I, I hated standing on the corner hawking papers. I just didn't like it. It seemed like a, I didn't enjoy it. Plus, it seemed like an a energy drain. We could have been out doing research and organizing, and here we we're trying to sell papers. And I had this idea. I said, you know, we used to sell advertising at at ridiculously low prices. People on the paper didn't really think of the uh, of the the ads as being worthy of, of paying the bills. I mean, it was like token, you know, the head shops, they advertised, the leather shops, they advertised, you know, but they didn't really think in terms of, of uh, we never thought that, that this was actually of value to them. We thought that they were really just being nice to us. But I thought that was the, the potential, uh, you know, that if we could, if we could raise the price of the ads to make them actual ad prices, I mean, worthy of, you know, uh, to, to be more what they're actually worth, and then we could increase the the circulation. In other words, if we could if we could double the size of the price of the ads, we could actually afford to print ten thousand and give them away, rather than printing three thousand and and spending days at a time trying to sell them and still losing. We could actually make money this way. We could, you know. And and so I had this idea: why don't we sell the ads? And of course, I was hoping that one of the heavies would come forth and do it. Uh, you know, because I was just, I was so new, I was just throwing out ideas. Mm-hmm. But uh, they, they all said to me, well, sell the ads. <laughs> you know, <and> I, <laughs> I, that was the first time I realized that if you have an idea, you got to be prepared to implement it. And um, and I was too embarrassed to say I couldn't do it, so I did it. And uh, I spent six weeks selling ads, and I actually sold enough to raise the, you know, to, to print 10,000 and give them away free. And in the summer of 1971, uh, July 14th, as a matter of fact, I believe was the date, mm-hmm. we actually we came out with the, the first free joint issue. And uh, it created an incredible noise, uh, I mean, incredible excitement. We were running up and down the streets giving papers away. People didn't know what was hitting them, but it, it made major news. And, uh, and so that fall, for the first time, we were able to actually create a schedule where uh, we knew that every week, we, every other week, we would come out with a new issue, and that it was going to already be paid for because we had ads, uh, you know, to, to go all the way from September through December. In other words, that semester, and uh, we continued to do that, uh, and so we were able to finally uh, come out on a regular basis. And uh, at one point, we increased the, the price again and came out with fifteen thousand, and the advertisers were delighted because they were, yeah, everybody was reading the paper, and so they were getting. You know, they were, they were gaining a certain prestige because they advertised in joint issues. So really, it was great business for them. And, um, and so that's how we supported ourselves. A few of the other papers around the country saw what we were doing, uh, paper out in Madison, paper called Free for All. Um, 
they they copied that model. Paper in, in Columbus, Ohio, Columbus Free Press uh, took that model. Uh, other papers though, did differently though. Of course, a lot of them, uh, you know, they 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 uh, sold drugs and, and used the money. Uh, others uh, had rich financiers, you know, the liberals uh, who who, uh, who uh, maybe didn't vote the right way, but at least they gave us money. Uh, some papers were supported through through the liberals. Uh, others had had uh, you know fundraisers. A lot of the bands were were uh, you know way behind us, and they would give us you know they would put on concerts uh, and raise money. Uh, so there were various ways to to uh, uh, to raise the money, uh, right. but the idea again was this was such a strong community effort that everybody wanted the papers to come out. Uh, I mean, it was uh, there was no way we could do it on our own. We had a lot of help, and it was really wonderful. And it was interesting, at least with respect to the joint issue, anyway, because you guys were all volunteer. Was that you were just trying to get the paper published with that first one that came out free. It says in your mm-hmm. article here that it was a 16-pager. You, I guess, in six weeks' time was able to sell $300 worth of ads, and you and it ended up costing about $305 to print it, so you lost $5, yeah, so but you guys were The first time we'd only lost pocket change. Yeah, we only <laughs> lost pocket change. That was a victory for us. And when it came to ads, you weren't beholden. I mean, there was definitely, it seemed a very strong firewall between your sponsors or advertisers and the content and that, you know, you didn't really care. You didn't accept ads from, and especially once you started getting larger circulation, you wouldn't even accept ads from banks and insurance companies, uh, uh, Jacobson's department stores, which I guess was yeah. a big, big department store chain, and barber shops. <laughs> I thought that was a crack up. <laughs> well, we had principals. We had we had our principals. Yeah. No ads from barbers. <laughs> that was right, pretty, right. Pretty Slum funny. landlords. We didn't use any of them. <laughs> anyway, so um, so how do you think this translates now to modern times? Of course. The underground press is morphed more or less into the alternative press, and we have a, a paper here that's an alternative weekly called uh, Reno News and Review, and their uh, model is very much that of joint issue in that the editions uh, are free and it's ad-supported, but the content is not nearly as radical as, as it once was, at least in the underground press. Um so, you know, we have the alternative presses out there, and then, of course, then you have the monster in the room, the gorilla in the room, which is the Internet, which uh-huh. back when you were doing the joint issue and distributed around the Lansing, East, what, Southeast Michigan area, if people wanted alternative news, that was pretty much the one source they went to. I guess there was a couple other papers that would pop up and disappear and so on. but you had a focused audience and there wasn't so much the dilution that we have now that's caused by the internet with Twitter and Facebook and blogs and so on and so forth. And it seems like it might've been easier back then to organize a movement or to at least, you know, get the message out about things that are going on within the community and concerns of the community and what the community members' concerns are, you know, through the underground press than it is now with uh, so much going on, such as, you know, even netcasting like what we're doing today. You know, there's just so much of it. It seems to be diluted. Can you, do you want, do you have some thoughts on that? Well, you've actually expressed uh, 
uh, a main thought. There's so much that it's hard to discriminate. Um, is this good or bad? I don't know. I would argue that it's better to have too much than not enough. Uh, and right now we have too much. Uh, I mean, there's so much, but it's, I mean, it's, it's, I can't say it's bad. I think we, we just need to educate people more. I mean, people need to edu become educated to become, to, to be able to discriminate between what's good and what's bad. I mean, if, if people, if people can't listen to Fox and realize that they're lying to you, then we're in real trouble. I mean, they are. I mean, they, you know, it's not just that they're right wing. They're, they're right wingers who are, I disagree with, but at least they're, they're being honest. You know, they just have a different interpretation than I do. But mm -hmm. Fox News, it's just, you know, the crap that they put out there is, is, you know, you don't have to listen to too many to realize that they're contradicting themselves or changing the story just to, you know, to, to fit the moment. Well, and, it's, and, uh, you know, shock journalism. Yeah, it's just shock journalism yeah, it, to get clicks for ads, you know, for sponsors. Yeah, but it, but it, it also uh, it also affects a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people right. believe that. That and it, it it amazes me. I can't believe they do, but they do. They do, and and they need to be educated. And uh, you know, I don't have the total answer on how we educate people to come back from that. But um, you know, sometimes well, it just takes. Go ahead. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that I got into early on when I first got on Facebook. Several years ago, I got into it with uh, with a, a journalist here for our corporate paper, uh, the Reno Gazette Journal, and we were going back and forth about about the differences between the internet and, and blogs and internet and and culling internet news, and I guess um, maybe something confirmation bias would come into this where you're looking for the news that kind of confirms what you're pre, you know, what you're already predisposed to be thinking. Whereas yeah. with a newspaper, you do have, even with corporate media, of course, you, you have, you sit down with a newspaper at the table and you're eating or whatever. That's when I read newspapers. Um, and you're exploring, you know, you don't know what's on the next page particularly, you know, in one section, you know, okay, here's the world news, but you don't know if it's going to be talking about China or Iraq or what it might be talking about. And then, of course, the local stuff, you know, so there's this discovery as you're going through a paper. And this would apply, of course, to the underground press as well, which I was really, I mean, it was just, it was all over the map and very interesting. Whereas with the internet, you tend to kind of get funneled into those particular sources that are confirming what you already know, you know, do, do you see that as being uh, an issue? Well, that's, I think that's, that's always, uh, I mean, and that probably was so even back then somewhat, you know, you find your comfort zone, you read certain magazines, newspapers, uh, that, that confirm what you believe. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think one issue is, is, uh, there's a uh, hard it's it's getting harder to distinguish between news and entertainment and uh you know newspapers the the, the <laughs> right. papers where we still traditionally think we need to go for news um, they become more entertainment than news uh i mean you don't see much in the way of investigative journalism anymore right. uh you know i mean i've uh, i've seen uh, report journalists in fact who are saying, well, what am I doing in this business? I can't earn a living because I want to investigate. Nobody wants to pay me to investigate. Right. Uh, you know, it's, um, but, but, uh, I mean, that we need more of that. We need, we need to return journalism to its, its, its function. 
you know, when you have journalists becoming friends of, of the politicians, uh, you know, and the better friend you are, the more likely you are to get the, uh, the story from them. But of course, the story from them is, is their story. Uh, and it's not necessarily the truth. Uh, and, and if you're, if you're trying to become friends, you're not, you know, you're betraying your role as a, as a real journalist. Right. And, uh, so, I mean, I, I, I would like to see journalism schools, uh, doing more to remind, uh, students of what, what a journalist is. You know, that's why I'd like to see more, uh, more schools, uh, studying the underground press. Right. You know, I'd love to right. see, I'd love to see my book picked up, quite frankly. Uh, you know, because it talks about what, when, when it really, when journalism was really journalism. Right. And, uh, we need more of that. We need a whole lot more of that. Uh, most journalism schools don't even talk about the underground press, let alone, you know, actually have a course on the underground press. <laughs> Indeed. Well, um, of course, then, I guess to round this off, then, our discussion, and to keep with the theme that I'm trying to develop with uh, Hacker Public Radio on hacking public policy, of course, the underground press and uh, and, and new media now and, and social, social media is all uh, important today with getting the word out and educating the public, whether you're you're talking to a very focused audience or a very fragmented audience nowadays, but nevertheless, it's, it's still another thing that we need to be aware of in this whole thing that we call community organizing, uh, with respect to, uh, HDR and in the interest of most HDR listeners, uh, as far as IT goes and, uh, Linux and open source and free software. Of course, there's a lot going on in, um, that can be done these days in activism to get more of a message out there to folks and to oppose problems where we see the proprietary closed source software going into our public schools. Of course, the LA school system recently announced this is the latter October, 2013, that they're going to be getting iPads for every single one of their students, which is just absolutely disgusting from, a, uh-huh. from an open source uh, free software <laughs> perspective. And if you right, want to right. organize against something like this and actually start talking about it, the media, the various media, the alternative press nowadays and uh, the corporate presses uh, are two tools that you need to use. So this was pretty much our, our the reason for this show. But plus, I'm just was curious to talk to somebody that was involved in the underground press. It was always a very fascinating thing for me growing up in the Los Angeles area at the time. So, Ken, why don't you plug the things that you're up to now, what you're doing, and where people can find you and your websites and so forth? Well, I appreciate that. Um, I talk I talk briefly about my book. It's the Voices from the Underground series. It's actually four books. Uh, you can find them at voicesfromtheunderground.com. Uh, I talk about uh, what the underground press is. I talk about the, uh, you know, all the different, uh, you know, what's in each one of the books. And there's some interesting stories in each one, so you can get a, a good feel of, of which uh, histories are in each one of them. Uh, plus, I have just some other stories of mine uh, from the period. Um, so that's happening right now. Plug in the book, you know, trying to get that out there. But I'm also working on a uh, really an interesting project to digitize underground newspapers from the period. Uh, you know, technically, you know, nobody was really thinking about copyright back then. People were just writing for the cause. But technically, 
uh, as soon as you put uh, you know words to paper, uh, you own the copyright to it. So uh, so my challenge has been to come up with a list of papers to digitize and, and then to figure out who the copyright holders would be, and then you know get permission. But uh, we've got an incredible response from this. Uh, if you go to a site called Reveal Digital, two words, Reveal Digital, but they're crammed together, of course, .com, RevealDigital.com, you'll see the beta site. Uh, what our goal is to digitize uh, a thousand papers uh, representing about a million pages worth of, of uh, work. Uh, in four years. That's our goal right now. <laughs> so what you've got on the beta site, what you've got on the beta site is 75,000 pages. In other words, it's really a, just a fraction. And all you've got there is the feminist and lesbian papers and the military papers and not even all of them. It's just mm -hmm. a, just a representative sample because we wanted libraries to see what the, uh, what the site looked like because we're going to be going to libraries for our funding. But, um, what we're doing, we're using a, a, a unique, economic model it's called uh, it's called cost recovery equals open access what that means is that once we've sold enough to the library market to recover our costs and our expenses and our, our salaries um, we'll be going to open access which means become become free to all uh, other libraries so uh, you know you always rely on certain libraries to, to support it with the idea that others will get it for free and the library community is pretty good at that um, but um, anyhow, so that's what we're doing. So it's a huge project, very exciting. Uh, we're going to have uh, underground papers. We're also going to have uh, alternative papers. We're going to have literary papers, uh, anarchist papers. We're even going to have right-wing papers in this collection, although I haven't actually started my outreach to them yet. But um, So it's a huge collection. Libraries are really excited about it. Uh, I'm real excited about it. It's a chance to... Uh, to bring the, the underground papers back from, you know, right now they're sitting on uh, dark shelves of special collections libraries all around the country. I mean, they are there. It's just that nobody sees them, and they're getting old. They're aging. They're they're yellowing. They're crumbling. And so uh, our project, uh, the goal is, the first goal is to preserve them, you know, by by scanning and digitizing them. And the second is to make them accessible. Uh, by creating this huge collection, it'll be the largest collection ever, uh, you know, digital collection of these papers, and uh, it's bringing them together. You know, different libraries may have incomplete runs of different titles, so by working with all the different libraries, we're able to fill in all the blanks and all the gaps, and and create complete uh, runs. So this is th these are the two big projects that I'm working on right have, now. Have you talked to you know the various states? All have these humanities nonprofits, and I think there's a national endowment for the humanities. Have you talked to those uh -huh. folks? I'm sure uh, they'd be very interested. Uh, well, this is it, it, the company is actually a for-profit company, uh, mm -hmm. so we're not able to get we're not going to be able to get funds from uh, from uh, uh, you know okay. nonprofit type places. But but what makes it unique is that that this is a, a almost anti-profit. Uh, Project. I mean, obviously, we're going to pay our salaries. You know, we're not. You know, we can't afford to to not do that. But, but uh, you know, once we reach the open access, uh, you know, the the mark, you know, the right number, the, the cost, what we call our sales threshold. Once we reach that, it goes into open access, and that particular collection then will not bring any more money in because it's now free. But meanwhile, we'll be working on other collections. We're, to, we're right. looking at uh, some of the uh, the the groups from that period. Uh, you know that 
not necessarily underground papers, but just some of the political groups talking to them. Uh, Liberation News Service, which was the uh, LNS Liberation News Service, that was like the AP and UPI of the underground press. And they used to put out uh, packets, three, you know, three packets a week, uh, news packets that they would send out to members and members could, uh, or subscribers, and the subscribers could then use them. Uh, we, we belong to LNS. Uh, so we're working with LNS folks now to digitize all the packets. Right. So that'll be another, another collection, you know, related Great. to the underground press collection, but a, a related one. And we're talking to some other groups too. We, we haven't signed the deals yet, so I don't want to, you know, say too much about who they are yet, but right. uh, but we're, we're in the early stages still, but we're getting a lot of interest. We're real, they're real excited about the whole economic model. Okay, and uh, give give listeners your website again? Uh, VoicesFromTheUnderground.com It's okay. the Voices From The Underground series, so it's VoicesFromTheUnderground.com uh, That's where you can find the book. My other books are at uh, my Zenfony Press uh, website, uh, A-Z-E-N P-H-O-N-Y, zenfonypress.com. That's where all my other books are. So thanks for giving me the chance to plug that. And we'll have those links with the show notes to this uh, edition of HDR Radio. And joining us today was Ken Watsberger, right? Very (laughs) good, very good. Get it, get it close enough, good. And thank Uh, you so, so much for your time. And it was just, you know, wonderful to talk to you and get the, uh, first person perspective from people, from somebody that was, you know, intimately involved with this, uh, underground press movement in its heyday. And, uh, good luck to you and all your projects. Okay. And thanks for inviting me. You're doing good work. So keep it up. I appreciate that. Thanks. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.